Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today our guest is Congresswoman Jackie Speer, who has represented part of the Bay Area in Congress since 2008 and served in the state legislature before that. On Tuesday, she announced that she would not be seeking re-election in 2022. I spoke with her on a Zoom call late Tuesday morning, Pacific time, along with Tal Copen, the Chronicle's Washington correspondent, and Kevin Fagan, a Chronicle reporter who has known and written about her for a long time. Here is our conversation with Congresswoman Jackie Speer. Welcome to a special breaking news edition of It's All Political. <laughs> And I apologize to you and and our listeners. I'm losing my voice a little bit thanks to a daycare bug brought home by my toddler, but such is life. Uh, I think the question on everyone's mind right off the bat is why now? You know, after your storied career, what what brought about this decision and and you know the decision to announce it today? Well, someone wrote me earlier today. My phone's been blowing up. He says and was complimenting me on knowing when to hold them and when to fold them. And I guess um, this decision didn't come lightly um, and it didn't come in a short period of time. It's been something I've been mulling over for probably four years. And it's actually quite personal. I have a husband who's been retired now for a year and a half. By the time I finish in Congress, it will be two and a half years. And He's told me for some time that, you know, he, he wants us to be able to spend time doing things together. And, you know, we just celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary. And I realized that for 20 years, he has had a weekend wife and it was time to, to give him more time, more time for my kids and hopefully grandkids and my friends and to, you know, to smell the roses a little bit. And, you know, I, we mentioned your, I mentioned your storied career and in your announcement video, you actually began, of course, with 43 years ago in Ghana um, and, and Jonestown. How, you know, you and I have, have spoken before about how you've drawn from your personal experiences in a lot of your work, but how has, you know, such an incredible life paired with everything you've experienced over your career, do you think, as you look back, how has it influenced the way you've approached being an elected official? Well, I actually think that all of us in elective office draw on our personal experiences to craft legislation, to vote on bills. And I don't think that's unusual. You know, maybe my life experience is a little unusual, but we, we tend to, to draw on those experiences. And, and certainly, I guess the lesson I learned because of Guyana was that I looked death in the eye and survived. So nothing I would do in politics um, would be, um, I should be fearful about. And so it was a way, it unleashed in me a willingness to take on issues, I guess, that uh, maybe I wouldn't have taken on, but for the fact that I had um, almost lost my life in Guyana. So that's certainly impacted me. And, I, and then 14 years later, when my husband was killed in an automobile accident, and I was pregnant with our second child, and I was three months from personal bankruptcy, I felt the um, huge burden of, um, you know, being um, 
of almost losing it all. I mean, I feeling I couldn't breathe. And, um, you know, I, I tell people this often, but for the fact that I had social security for my two kids, literally a thousand dollars a month for each child, um, allowed me to have childcare, uh, allowed me to breathe a little. So, you know, when we look at social security benefits, it's not just for seniors and those who are disabled, it's also for dependents of widows and widowers. And so I've had a lot of life experiences that have shaped my public policy, but um, I'm grateful for all of them. Congresswoman, one of the life experiences that I will always remember you talking about publicly was when uh, you spoke about your abortion on the House floor. Um, and I want to see, we have this big abortion case coming up before the Supreme Court in December, the Mississippi case. What are your concerns about the future of abortion rights in the country? And what do you think California's role should be in protecting it? There's this future of abortion council that's uh, been started to to increase California's role in being sort of a haven. Um, what, what, what are your concerns and what do you think California's role should be in the future? Well, SB 8, the law in uh, Texas is despicable. I mean, it is as close to a misogynist piece of legislation uh, that I've ever seen. It was, you know, intentionally crafted in a way to, um, to create bounty hunters on um, women who were seeking abortion services. And you know what's left out in this scenario is, how about the impregnator? Why does the impregnator get away with nothing? Um, so uh, I, I'm actually confident that we're gonna protect abortion rights. Uh, I'm confident because if the Supreme Court were to rule that um, in the Mississippi case, that abortion isn't available um, past 16 uh, weeks, it's still gonna be done on a state-by-state -state basis. And California will become the, um, the sanctuary for women and families who are, are seeking services and will take care of people. I, um, I feel very strongly that it is a safe, medical procedure. It is legal in this country. And yet the machinations that um, so many of these members go through in many states that have created all these restrictions on abortions are, are really uh, intentionally mean-spirited and anti-women. And I, as I said on the House floor very recently, they're pro-birth, they're not pro-life. And we're still struggling to, to give dependents in the military access to contraception without a copay. And, you know, they don't get paid big salaries in the military. And if your dependent needs an IUD and it's $1,000 and a copay, um, that's not right. So why should everyone else in America have access to contraception except for dependents of service members? But, you know, they weave these, these stories that allow them to create these anomalies. Well, Congressman, you're known, you're known as a fearless voice. Uh, how do you feel about leaving Congress in, the, in a year or so uh, at a time when, when a voice like that is needed probably more than ever? 
Well, Kevin, you know that I have a voice that's probably not going to be silenced, but um, I've still got 14 months. Um, we're going to use every minute to try and fashion good legislation. And I'm not going to, I'm not going away. I'm actually coming home. So I'm going to be home to be able to make the case for all the issues I still care about and continue to be engaged in the community. And I don't know what the future is going to bring, but I, I'm not, I, I'm not, you know, rolling up my tent and walking away. Good. That's what, that's what I was wondering. What are you going to do next? Cause I can't imagine you kicking back with a daiquiri somewhere. <laughs> It's a martini or a Manhattan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is this ruling out? Are you going to rule out a run for future office? Oh, interesting. I'm not going to rule out anything. Okay. I have no plans, but let me make that clear. I have no plans. Um, okay. But Democratic operative uh, uh, Steve Maviglio, who we both know very well, has said you you may be considering a run for governor next I'm year. I'm not considering anything right now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Okay, fair. Uh, what? How much? But but we have to ask a, a, a political question. We, you've talked about all your personal reasons for for um, for for your decision right now. But how much of this is you look at the future and you say, "Man, this is not going to be a good year for Democrats." You've served in the minority. How much did that play into your uh, decision? Actually, Joe, not th- not at all. Um, I I've served in the minority for the majority of my time in Congress. So you know that's not new for me. I will say there is a, a, a level of um, vitriol and ugliness here that is hard to take. And, you know, the resolution that I've introduced to censure Paul Gosar, a colleague who, you know, maybe four years ago, I'd sit down and have a really fine conversation with, who, who now puts out a, an enemy that that shows him killing a colleague, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, and then mm-hmm. you know, trying to take out the President of the United States. That's not normal. And we've allowed that level of um, hyperbole and vitriol to uh, consume this institution. And so I'm saying we've got to start drawing red lines. There are 23 members of the House that have been censored. And it's fun to go back and look at them because one of them got censored for insulting the Speaker of the House. Well, I said to the Speaker last night when I was talking to her, well, how many people could we censor just in the last week that have that have uh, insulted you? Um, another member got censored because he used unparliamentary language on the House floor. So we have devolved into an institution that allows for uh, members to get more and more outrageous in their conduct. Republicans taking on Republicans, putting their telephone numbers online and having members' lives put at risk because of it. Um, and it's got to stop. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Congresswoman Jackie Speer after this short break. And now, here's more of our conversation with Congresswoman Jackie Speer. You just mentioned speaking uh, with Speaker Pelosi last night. You know, this this may be something only a reporter pays attention to, but I noticed that there were not a lot of sort of pre-written statements ready to go when you made your announcement. Usually it's a telltale sign if the, if the you know, statements, and we all expect, you know, 
just really laudatory statements about your career. If those come right away, you know, they had forewarning. We didn't have that. Was this something that you kept pretty close to the vest? Did you tell the speaker last night or, or earlier? No, I, I actually, um, I, t- I think I talked to her around 11 o'clock and um, told her she was stunned. She, she was shocked. She really was, um, you know, couldn't believe I was doing it. She says, you're so young. <laughs> I'm 71. I'm not so young. <laughs> I still feel young, but I'm not so young. Um, so, yeah, I, I think she was, she was, she was very surprised. I, I think a lot of my colleagues were very surprised. I got two questions. What, one is, what's your advice for the person who takes your place and who do you want to take your place? So I, I'm not going to speak out about that at this point, Kevin, but I hope someone uh, will recognize the um, great opportunity it is to serve the people of um, the 14th Congressional District and will use the power that you're given for that period of time to do good work. I, I'm always, I get very disappointed when I see pieces of legislation that look nothing more than dotting I's and crossing T's and people, you know, parading around like they've done some magnificent thing. You know, when I first got here to Congress, I was so surprised at how we did business as compared to the state legislature. I mean, every bill in the state legislature you have in front of you, you have a a summary about it. Every bill that's introduced has a hearing. Um, That's not so much what Congress is like. And um, so there were a number of times early on when bills were being passed. I thought, oh, wow, this is great. Well, you read the title and the title was magnificent. And then you read the bill and it was like, well, what does this really do? So that would be my advice. Make a difference. Make a real difference. Congresswoman, your, your, uh, uh, your district, of course, is, is a part of Silicon Valley. Are you concerned that the race for your successor may be swamped with tech money from tech interests and that may... Uh, uh, you know, uh, be uh, an, an unfair imbalance by someone. Is that is that one of your concerns? Well, I don't believe it's um, a big concern because actually, you know, I don't I don't receive a lot of tech money. Um, I get, but someone else may, um, and I get some. You know, I've received some biotech. Money. Most of my contributions comes from uh, most of my contributions come from individuals. I would say the vast majority of my my campaign. Uh, coffers from individuals. So um, I think it's a very smart district. And I think the the electorate will make sure that they have someone that represents their interests. Just following along this line of questioning, you know, open congressional seats don't come up in the Bay Area very often. It's a place that we currently have a lot of people who have been serving, serving for a really long time. you mentioned the speaker's reaction. Uh, there's there are some others in the Bay Area delegation that folks are sort of watching, wondering if there may be some more retirements coming. I mean, do you think? I know you mentioned being in the minority is not a concern, but but does this feel to you like a moment where we might see some generational change in politics in our area? Well, I, you know, I can't speak to that, and I don't know what my colleagues are thinking, but. I've always thought that it was important to, you know, allow the next generation to serve. You know, for before I got elected, the congressman who served served for almost 30 years. 
and you know locked out a whole generation of potential candidates. That was Congressman Lantis, who did a, a wonderful job. But um, so, and he was 80 when um, when he ended up passing away um, from uh, esophageal cancer. So um, I, I, I can't speak to my colleagues and what their decision-making is like. I mean, mine is, is um, impacted by uh, my family life. Um, not everyone has that um, that issue. What are you proudest of, Congresswoman? Am I proudest of? Yeah, as accomplishing in Congress and well, just in life. Well, I, I if we are successful this year, it was a ten year battle to get military sexual assault taken out of the chain of command. Uh, um, I will be very proud of that. Um, I think I've realigned the military personnel subcommittee to be more than looking at. Um, exchanges and commissaries. I mean, we have focused in on issues that are that are real, whether it's um, LGBT or transgender service or military sexual assault or suicide or domestic violence. Um, those are all important issues that I think historically were not addressed. We've got a childcare crisis in the military. We have um, we have service members who serve but so do their families. And I've tried to, to use that mantra over and over again. And I've visited many bases and um, I've learned a lot and, and hopefully have, have made life better for those who serve and their families as well. How about in your life? In my life? Well, in my life, um, my precious children are the, the greatest um, accomplishment of my life. And I now have a son who got married in COVID, had 12 people at the wedding. Um, they bought a house in San Mateo. So I'm, I'm thrilled that they are, um, they're here for, for good. And um, my daughter is uh, now living in San Francisco and I'm thrilled about that. And she's working um, in journalism as well. And um, I'm happy for her. So I'm, I'm very, I'm a very happy camper right now. And I look forward, Kevin, to doing more work with you on issues that we care about around the homeless. And yeah, you slept in a shelter. I don't know many Congress people who've done that. Yeah. Call me anytime. Well, you know, part of that was because of the you know, lessons learned with Congressman Ryan. I also slept in a, um, a woman's uh, prison when um, mm -hmm. I was in the state legislature and dealing with the battered woman syndrome and how many women were serving time for having killed their abusers. So, um, but um, hopefully there'll, there'll be more opportunities for us to work together. Um, but it was also Pope Francis, who as a, a cardinal, I believe, would go um, and, or even maybe when he was Pope early on, would go and walk around um, Rome and, and meet with the homeless. I think we learn a lot from people when we're there with them. Yeah, yeah. If you could do one thing to change Washington or two things. What would you do? Uh, you, you've, of course, served in Sacramento. You served in Washington. What would you want to do to change Washington for the better? Oh, I think we have to get rid of the filibuster. Um, I, I really do think that Congress has become a blood sport. And it, it is a sin now to negotiate with colleagues on the other side of the aisle. That's basically what Marjorie Taylor Greene was saying, um, that by developing an infrastructure package and voting for it, 
um, you're committing this grievous sin because you're supporting President Biden. No, she wasn't supporting President Biden. All those people that voted for it are supporting their districts and wanting to get money to fix what needs to be fixed, but it's gotten so twisted. Um, so I would, I'd, I'd want to have a stricter code for how we conduct ourselves as members of Congress. I, I really think uh, it's out of control now. So some stricter code and getting rid of the filibuster and maybe putting a, lot, a, a, um, a ban on how long you can serve, not a term limit, but you know, age limit ban. Oh, really? What would you set that at? Oh, probably 75. In, 75. Okay. So, so you're saying Pelosi should leave now? No, I'm not. I'm, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not saying that at all. She's remarkable, right? She's she very. Is. Do you what? What do you think that her? Do you think what do you think her future is? You're very close with her. Uh, there's it's a topic of much speculation. Uh, do you think the speaker is this? She's sort of had a, this vague promise that this may be her last term. Do you think it will be? Well, she said this would be her last term as speaker. I think, or speaker, she made a commitment yeah. that. This would be her last term. I, I don't know what her plans are, obviously. And, I, you know, I don't know if members in the caucus would want to convince her to, to run again um, as speaker. I, I can't speak to that. Um, I hope for her, I have this fantasy that um, when she does decide to leave, whenever that is, that um, she gets appointed ambassador to Italy because that is still oh, open. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, that's where she is. Wow. What a dream gig. Yes. Tal. Yeah. Congresswoman, thank you so much for your time and for joining us, you know, at the Chronicle for these, these reflections, hopefully your promise to Kevin, <laughs> this, this won't be uh, the last time we chat about these things. And of course, you know, hopefully I'll see you in the halls of Congress again soon. And I've got 14 more months and I'm going to use every day of it um, as, as much as I can. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Congresswoman Spear for being here today. I'd like to thank my colleagues, Tal Copen and Kevin Fagan for being here as well. And of course, we always thank Webby Award winning producer, the King, King Kaufman, for producing this episode. I always throw some love out for our theme music. That song you're listening to is called Cattle Call, and it was written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. And remember, no matter what your reasons are for not running for re-election, it's all political. <laughs>